Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 15 of the CCRN Review Podcast Series. Welcome to those of you that are new. I hope you enjoy uh, the podcast. And for those of you that have been with me in previous podcasts, welcome back for another podcast today. So our topic today is basically pacemakers, is really our focus. And to be even more specific, I'm going to do pacemaker pearls for the CCRN exam. And our focus is going to be on temporary transvenous pacing. I will also talk a little bit about biventricular pacing as well. Now, I have a couple of announcements to include here, guys. And the first is I have started a CCRN question of the day challenge on my Facebook page. I would love it if you would join us uh, every day. You'll get a question by 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, and you have all day to kind of think about what the answer might be. And then between 5 and 6 p.m., again, Central Standard Time, I will post the answer in the comment section. We've been having a lot of fun. We're a a little over a week into it right now, and it's been a lot of fun. So that is my Facebook page, which is at Presents. Now, another announcement I have is that I do have, I just posted a free basic dysrhythmia cheat sheet on my website, which is khoppypresents.com. You can just head over to my website, you can download the cheat sheet, and you can use it as a clinical reference for yourself, for others, or you can use it for teaching. So I hope you enjoy it, and I would appreciate your feedback on that. If you could uh, drop me an email and give me some feedback, that would be wonderful, or on my Facebook page as well. So again, today we're talking about pearls for temporary transvenous pacing in the ICU. And so I'm not going to do any kind of big rendition on all types of, of pacemakers because realistically there probably won't be very many questions on pacers and most of it will have to do with pacemaker troubleshooting. So uh, let's get started. Now, what earns a patient a temporary pacer in the ICU? Well, the patient might come in with bradycardia with syncope. They might have a second degree AV block type two, very slow response. 
Uh, they might have bifascicular block. Now, let me just take a second and explain this. When you think of the bundle branches, we actually have three fascicles, even though when you think of the bundle branches, you think about having the right and the left bundle branch. However, the left side, the left bundle branch is divided into two fascicles. There's an anterior superior fascicle of the left bundle branch, and there's an inferior posterior fascicle of the left bundle. And so therefore, guys, the left bundle is composed of two fascicles, whereas the uh, right bundle is in and of itself its own fascicle. And so when we say bifascicular block, we are saying by two of our three fascicles are block. So it might be somebody that develops a left bundle branch block where both the anterior and the posterior fascicles of the left bundle are blocked, or it could mean that the patient has a right bundle branch block in addition to one of the fascicles of the left bundle. So we might have somebody that has a right bundle branch block with a left anterior fascicular block. And really the other name that we use to describe that is hemiblock. So uh, again, three fascicles, obviously if you have trifascicular block, you're looking at a pretty miserable day because then the only backup pacemaker that you have left are those Purkinje fibers, which fire at a rate of less than 40 typically. So you could have a patient that comes in with a big anterior wall MI with um, new onset of bundle branch block. They are at huge risk for uh, high degree AV block as well. And so we need to be thinking about temporary transvenous pacing and having all of those things available as need be. Now we might have somebody that comes in with an inferior wall MI. And if you'll remember from the anatomy and physiology section of this podcast series, that the right coronary artery supplies the AV node. And if somebody comes in with an inferior wall MI, we know that that right coronary artery is having a bad day. And of course, it just makes sense if the right coronary is having a bad day, then anything that it supplies will have a bad day as well. And that's why we see that so often patients that come in with inferior wall MIs will also have bradycardias and they'll have AV blocks, sometimes requiring temporary transvenous pacing. Most of the time it's temporary. Whereas with anterior wall, when they require transvenous pacing initially on a temporary basis, we sometimes find that they go on to need a permanent pacemaker as well. So when we talk about indications, I think we pretty well have uh, covered the majority that you would see in the critical care setting. Now, when we talk about the five position pacemaker code, that might be something that you encounter on the exam. So I'm just going to take a few moments and go over that. So when a patient has a pacemaker in place, we know that there is a code that reflects the settings of that pacemaker. And so we can say, for example, that a patient has a 
a DDD pacemaker or a VVI pacemaker. And let's just go through those, those symbols, those codes. Um, the first position or the first letter always deals with the chamber that's paced. So V stands for ventricle, A stands for atrium, and of course D stands for dual. The second letter of the code is the chamber that's sensed. Now, once again, we have V for ventricle, A for atrium, and D for dual. The third position of the pacemaker code has to do with the mode of response. In other words, how the pacemaker will respond if the patient has their own intrinsic beat. And so the letters there are I for inhibit, T for trigger, D for dual, so I can do both, or O for none, which means basically that it's an asynchronous pacemaker. The fourth letter of the pacemaker code is, uh, it has to do with programmability. And so there we see the letter R being used very commonly having to do with rate modulation. In other words, it's a rate responsive pacemaker. So it allows for the pacemaker to speed up based on need and to slow back down when the patient's at rest. And this is all based on myopotentials and pH that are sensed by the pacemaker and the rate is increased. So whenever you have a patient that has a programmable pacemaker in place, and of course this now is talking more, uh, more about permanent pacing, but I'm just going to throw this in. When you get a patient from the cath lab with a permanent pacemaker insertion, and you're looking at the settings of the pacemaker, it's always important to look at both the high and the low rate. So in other words, the high rate is when the patient is active, how high will the pacemaker rate go or fire in order to provide for an increased heart rate based on activity? And of course, the low rate is when the pacemaker will kick in. So if I am out walking the dog around the lake and I do not have a rate modulation or a rate responsive pacemaker, as I walk around the lake and I need a higher heart rate as I'm walking along, um, I'm going to get tired really fast if my, if I'm 100% pacemaker dependent and that pacemaker cannot increase its rate to meet the needs of my body. So rate modulation or rate responsiveness is really important. So very typically you see a high rate of about 130, which is really appropriate. So as I'm walking around the lake with the dog or the dog is walking me around the lake, which is a lot more uh, probable, my heart rate can go up to meet the tissue needs of my body. So I'm not resting at every park bench I walk by because my rate can't go up. So that's a very important addition to pacemakers, permanent pacemakers that allows for people to be a lot more, you know, independent and able to engage in, you know, their, their typical activities. So the fifth position then of the pacemaker code is the anti-tachycardia function. So O meaning none, 
A, atrium, V, ventricle, B, both. In other words, when we talk about an anti-tachycardia function, we're talking about if the pacemaker can fire faster than the patient's sensed rate in order to take over. An anti-tachycardia function might be used in patients, let's say, with uh, recurrent SVT in order to try and take over and then slow down the rate. So any kind of tachycardia, whether it's atrial or ventricular, it can fire at a rate that's faster in order to take over and then bring down the rate. So those are the components then of the five position pacemaker code. What you're most likely to get on the CCRN exam has to do with pacemaker malfunctions, how you identify them, and what you do about them. So that's what we're going to get into now. Let's start out with failure to fire or failure to pace or non-pace, non-fire, whatever you are used to calling it. This is where, of course, the pacemaker doesn't fire. You don't see a spike. Now, it stands to reason that we're really dependent upon, or I should say the patient is dependent upon, an underlying rhythm in order to sustain life. Because if the pacemaker doesn't fire and there's no underlying rhythm, you have nothing, correct? You have a systole, you have a code. Even if the patient has an underlying rhythm, if that rhythm and rate is not fast enough and efficient enough to be able to maintain a decent blood pressure, you may have a very shocky or coding patient on your hands. Failure to capture. Well, this isn't a whole lot better because now the pacemaker fires. Okay, that's all good but it doesn't capture, which means we see pacemaker spikes that are not followed by QRS complexes. And we're going to talk about how we troubleshoot that. Failure to sense, this can be potentially lethal because this is where the pacemaker is failing to sense the patient's own intrinsic beats and is continuing to fire. A very good example of a uh, failure to sense is when we have a, pacema a pacemaker set on asynchronous mode. In that particular case, the pacemaker will continue to fire at a prescribed rate despite what might be going on underneath it. So sometimes people really get confused about the use of a magnet and pacemakers. I have heard people say, well, we use a magnet to turn a pacemaker off. And, you know, that's not true, guys. What we do with the magnet or the effect of a magnet on a pacemaker, and of course, I'm kind of going back now to a permanent pacemaker, because in critical care, certainly you could be in a situation where somebody has a permanent pacemaker as well. I'm just trying not to spend too much time on it, but this is very noteworthy. And that is when you place a magnet over a permanent pacemaker, you are going to change the pacemaker to a asynchronous or fixed rate pacer. That's what you're going to do. And so um, it does not turn the pacemaker off. So let's explore in a little bit more detail. Let's explore these pacemaker malfunctions. So what kinds of things can cause 
failure to pace because that's the first one that we talked about. Well, there could be a dead battery. That's why when you look at many hospitals and their policies on temporary transvenous pacing, they will say that you have to have spare batteries and a spare pulse generator at the patient's bedside at all times. So just in case you have a generator at arm's reach and you have batteries also that are there at your reach as well. And now what's cool is the pacemakers of today, when the battery goes dead in the pacemaker or you actually, that hopefully will never happen. But uh, when you change out the battery in the pulse generator, it actually allows you several seconds to get that new battery in uh, without uh, causing any uh, delay in the patient's rhythm. And that's based on an internal battery that will keep pacing despite the fact that you've taken the battery out to replace it with new ones. You know, I know I'm really dating myself, but sometimes in the past, I mean, it would be a hair-raising experience to have to change out the battery in a temporary transvenous pacer when the patient had absolutely no inherent underlying rhythm because there was no backup uh, when you took out the battery as there is today. So thank goodness we have that. Other things that can cause failure to pace. Loose connections, certainly that can happen in a temporary pacing situation. There might be a fractured lead or a displaced lead, or it can there can be a sensing malfunction. Uh, probably one of the times that uh, you can have sensing malfunctions is in the OR when cautery is in use. The pacemaker may incorrectly interpret that cautery and inhibit firing. So our interventions then are aimed around replacing the battery and the pulse generator, checking our connections, and you know, the, the bottom line always is looking at your patient. Until I get the troubleshooting mechanisms you know, taken care of, does my patient need CPR? Does my patient need a transcutaneous pacemaker applied? Do I need to call a code? So those are very possible CCRN questions where they're giving you a scenario and what you should do first. Obviously, if the patient does not have a underlying rhythm that's going to maintain a blood pressure and a pulse, you have to start compressions and coding the patient. So read through the story problem very carefully to see what kind of rhythm the patient might have uh, underneath, you know, uh, the, the paced rhythm and whether or not it can sustain a blood pressure. So that's really important. Now, when we talk about failure to capture, of course, this is where we see pacing spikes without QRSs, or if it's an atrial pacemaker, P waves following the spikes. Most often when you're talking about temporary transvenous pacing, of course, you're talking about ventricular pacing. So things that can cause failure to capture, well, maybe there's fibrosis or a clot at the catheter tip. There could be electrolyte imbalances, especially potassium, magnesium, calcium that could cause failure to capture. 
drug toxicity. How about acid-base imbalance? For example, you have a patient that's acidotic. Their pH is less than 7.2. You may have difficulty getting capture and you will require an increase in milliamplitude in order to get yourself there. What about if there is ischemia and the patient, the catheter tip is at this necrotic or ischemic area that doesn't conduct an impulse? I mean, there are a lot of different possibilities. What about loose connections, displacement of the lead, lead fracture, battery fracture, or worst case scenario, of course, would be chamber perforation. That always leads to a bad day because now you have somebody that's going to go on to tamponade and uh, display all of those signs and symptoms. So what are some of our interventions for failure to capture? We're going to position that patient over on their left side, increase the milliamplitude, check all our connections, replace the battery. We may need to replace the pulse generator grab a chest x-ray for uh, lead displacement and correct that as needed. Look at metabolic things, electrolytes, acid-base balance, check drug levels if need be. And uh, of course, looking at the rhythm in multiple leads. So getting a 12 lead. And again, you always have the transcutaneous pacemaker as your kind of your saving grace that you can lean on as need be while you're trying to troubleshoot. So next let's get into failure to sense. Of course, this is where the pacemaker is not sensing properly. And the pitfall of this guys is that when the pacemaker can't sense the patient's own intrinsic rhythm, It can fire and it does fire at places where it shouldn't. For example, that very vulnerable time, the downslope of the T wave is a very electrically vulnerable time. All you need is a pacemaker spike to hit on the downslope of the T wave and you can send somebody into VTAC. And so again, that is the worst case scenario. It would be equivalent really to R on T, much like we see when a PVC comes in and hits on the downslope of the T wave. Only it's, you know, the pacemaker spike is the electrical impulse rather than the PVC that is hitting on the downslope of the T. Causes of failure to sense include sensitivities to low, maybe there's an inadequate signal uh, for the pacemaker to be able to sense properly, maybe there's a disconnection or, or lead fracture, lead fracture, battery fracture. Are you seeing some common threads coming through here in terms of causes and troubleshooting mechanisms? So when we look at our pulse generator, we want to check to see if the pacemaker somehow got set on asynchronous mode, position the patient on the left side, and we start uh, increasing the sensitivity of the pacemaker. Now, this is kind of weird because when you talk about increasing the sensitivity, you are actually using the dial in order to, or the turn, the turn knob to dis- decrease the millivolt. And it seems weird. Okay, I'm going to increase sensitivity, increase sensitivity by decreasing the millivolt. And 
we always in the critical care course say to people, just think of it as a fence, guys. Think of the fence being the millivolts. If I want to see my, my um, neighbor's yard, if I want to see what's going on in my neighbor's yard better, what do I have to do with the fence? I have to lower the fence. That increases my sensitivity or my ability to see what's going on in my neighbor's yard. If I do not care at all what's going on in my patient's yard and I want complete privacy, I'm going to do what with my fence? I'm going to increase the millivolt. I'm going to bring up the millivolt, bring up my fence in order to decrease sensitivity or my ability to see over into my neighbor's yard. So again, I I hope that's helpful for you. It's certainly something that critical care educators have been using forever to help people understand that. Other interventions in failure to sense include checking your connections, again, checking chest x-ray for lead displacement and um, the pulse generator and the battery and so on. Maybe the patient has an intrinsic rhythm that's adequate. Um, where until we can get this troubleshooting taken care of, maybe the patient doesn't require the pacemaker, or we can decrease the overall rate of the pacemaker to a minimally acceptable rate. You know, guys, as I'm talking about this, I'm thinking maybe my next cheat sheet that I put out should be targeted around pacemakers. So I earlier mentioned that on my website, I have a free basic dysrhythmia cheat sheet that you can download, head over to khoppypresents.com and download that. And I think my next one will have to do with pacing, pacing, troubleshooting and so on. So sorry, just uh, had that idea that I will include that uh, as a future cheat sheet. Okay, back to pacemaker issues. So oversensing. Well, you know, oversensing means that the pacemaker is incorrectly recognizing extraneous electrical activity and interpreting it as an electrical impulse from the heart. And so it inhibits firing. So some of the causes include sensitivity is set too high. Maybe the pacemaker is even oversensing P or T waves as being actual QRSs. Also, myopotentials uh, or cautery used in, in OR, for example. So our interventions include, again, decreasing the sensitivity, check to make sure that, you know, the, the lead is, is placed properly, chest x-ray for lead placement, and then we talked about um, changing the sensitivity you want to, if the pacemaker is oversensing and inhibiting, you want to decrease ventricular sensitivity, right? So that means we want to raise the fence. And so we will be increasing the milliamp as far as our sensitivity is concerned in order to um, decrease our ability to uh, sense. Transcutaneous pacing, once uh, once again, may be required in this situation. 
So let's next look into special situations in patients with pacemakers. So codes, for example, in surgery. We know that in a code situation, we want to keep our defibrillator patches at least, you know, one to two inches away from a permanent pacemaker site on the chest. And then very importantly, guys, after a code, a pacemaker, a permanent pacemaker should be interrogated. That's really very important. Now, a magnet, we talked about a magnet, It and, and the special situation here is surgery. Um, a magnet does not turn off the pacemaker. A magnet will switch a permanent pacemaker over to an asynchronous mode. So it no longer is a demand pacemaker. It is an asynchronous pacemaker. And that is basically because electrocautery can cause the pacemaker to interpret that as impulses from the heart. And so it can inhibit. And so we want to have a fixed, uh, fixed rate pacer or an asynchronous uh, mode to our pacemaker in surgical situations. Now, our last topic today having to do with pacemakers is by V or biventricular pacing. So, you know, what patients are set up for or candidates for biventricular pace, uh, biventricular pacing? Well, think about heart failure patients. Think about patients with big ventricles and cardiomyopathy. About 30 to 50% of heart failure patients have ventricular asynchrony. Now, when the ventricles do not contract together, you have a compromised cardiac output. That should just stand to reason, right? And so how do we identify the patients that have uh, asynchrony of ventricular contraction? Well, first of all, we become very suspicious when we see those patients go on to develop a big bundle branch block, a left bundle branch block in the face of heart failure. So these people typically have an EF around 35% or less. Their QRS complex width is at least 0.15 or 150 milliseconds. And on the New York Heart Association classification, they are classified as a three or a four. And so that's very advanced failure, though that's people whose quality of life and activities are very limited by the signs and symptoms of heart failure, including shortness of breath, edema, and those kinds of things. So when we talk about um, the benefits then of putting in a biventricular pacemaker, it's going to increase left ventricular filling time. It's going to decrease the QRS duration because the ventricles are both receiving impulses and contracting together. So your QRS will narrow. You'll have improved left ventricular ejection fraction. And so the amount of mitral regurg should be less. A decrease in septal dyskinesis, because we do have the synchrony between right and left. And you know, the quality of life is improved with improved exercise tolerance. 
So one of the things that came into my mind when I first heard about biventricular pacing, and it's been out for a while, but what came through my head first is how in the world do you get a pacing tip into the left ventricle? Like, how do you do that really? Well, actually, when you look at it anatomically, you can access the left ventricle via the outside, via the epicardium, if you insert a pacing lead through the coronary sinus, which goes from the right. You can access the coronary sinus uh, via the right atrium. You access the coronary sinus, and what will happen is that pacing lead is threaded from right to left in the coronary sinus vein. So, you know, from the left side standpoint, the left heart is receiving its electrical impulse from the outside. Whereas over on the right side, you know, we're very familiar with the fact that you can have a pacing lead that has, you know, one tip in the one pacing lead for the right atrium and one for the right ventricle. So we call that what dual chamber pacing or AV sequential pacing. But now we can actually pace the right and the left ventricles together. And so the right ventricle is actually receiving its impulses from endocardium that get transmitted through to epicardium, whereas the left ventricle is receiving its impulses from epicardium that then spread down through endocardium. The bottom line is, is both of the ventricles are getting their impulses at the same time. And so therefore the ventricles can contract in synchrony. So it's really kind of cool. And it's really very cool when you look at a chest x-ray of somebody that has a bi-V pacer in place, because you see the lead tips for the right atrium and the right ventricle. And then you can just actually see where that pacing lead is threaded through the coronary sinus vein from the right atrium around the back and kind of circling around the left ventricle to supply the left ventricle with a pacing impulse from the epicardium uh, inward. So really kind of neat stuff. And it has been really a lifesaver to patients who fit the profile, cardiomyopathy, end stage type of heart failure with ventricular asynchrony, big, huge, wide QRS complex and a left bundle branch block. So, um, very cool stuff. Anyway, guys, I hope this little, um, podcast on pacemaker pearls will help you for the CCRN exam. I think I've adequately covered the things that you are likely to encounter on the exam. I hope you've enjoyed the podcast and I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much and hope to see you in episode 16, where we're going to be discussing hypertensive crisis. Take care. Bye-bye.